It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 303 for July 29th, 2012. This week, spear fishing, smarter and more dangerous. Mountain Lion beats Microsoft to the finish line, and in short circuits, Number two, must try harder, going to Kansas City. And it was a dark and stormy night. The message appeared to come from the IT department at Jeff's company. The IT manager, whose office is in a distant state, said that a security problem had been detected on the corporate LAN. The problem had been resolved, but all users should follow the attached link to a security partner's website to confirm that their computer had not been infected. What should Jeff do? Better yet, what would you do? The message could be legitimate, or it might be a spear-phishing attempt. You're probably familiar with the phishing term. That's the process of sending broadcast spams that seek to acquire information cyber criminals can use. Spear phishing is the smarter, more concentrated method. Routine phishing messages are sent to hundreds of thousands of people. As a result, I might receive a phishing message that claims to come from the Bank of America, even though I have never had a Bank of America account. Over the years, the crooks have gotten better by picking small local banks and then sending messages to limited geographic areas. The message you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week purports to be from the Economic and Financial Crimes Commission of Nigeria, and it's a typical and largely unremarkable example, except that it's one of a relatively new strain that warns against dealing with fraudsters and promises compensation if you work with the sender who, of course, is honest. Some phishing messages include graphics stolen from legitimate messages, and in recent years, the text has begun to look more like something that a reasonably intelligent native speaker of American English would write. But there's always a flaw that exposes the ruse for what it is. The message or the website that the victim is directed to will always ask for information that the sender would already have. Spear phishing takes the threat to a new level. Customers of a telecommunications firm might receive an email that says there was a problem with a recent order or a bill payment. To remedy the problem, just visit the company's website. Just click this link and respond to a few questions. You'll see an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website of a spear phishing attempt that appears to come from ADP. It's a company with some 50,000 employees worldwide, and it processes payroll checks for millions of people. The message not only includes the ADP logo conveniently linked from an ADP website, but also looks and feels like a corporate communication. It's pretty convincing. The message is plausible in that it describes security updates that are planned and simply asks the recipient to read more about the service and then view a 15-minute program. These are typical requests, but hovering a mouse over any of the links would reveal that they do not point to any ADP websites. So following any of the links would almost certainly result in what's called a drive-by malware attack. 
I don't know that with certainty, though, because the site had been taken down before I had a chance to investigate it further. Never follow a suspect link with a browser. Instead, if you want to see the raw HTML and any other code that the site will serve, use Microsoft PowerShell. You'll find it on any Vista or Windows 7 computer, and it's also available for XP. You can use that to make a web client call and read the entire page into a variable. Once you've done that, you can safely inspect the contents of the variable on screen or write it out to a text file and open it in Notepad or UltraEdit. If you'd like to know how to do that, drop me a note and I'll tell you. But in this case, the page was gone, so I wasn't able to see what they were trying to do. Sometimes the crooks target people who have accounts with a specific cell phone company and send a message that says a bill has just been paid or is due. Usually the amount is $1,000 or more. That's enough to get the victim's undivided attention and maybe to cause the victim to click the link without thinking about it. Now, in Jeff's case, the criminals might be directing an attack at users within a specific company. The fraudulent message might not be sent to everyone. Instead, the crooks might be engaged in corporate espionage, so they would be looking only for mid-level managers and above, people who might reasonably have accounts that would give them access to the company's proprietary information. The FBI explains it this way. Instead of casting out thousands of emails randomly, hoping for a few victims who will bite, spearfishers target select groups of people with something in common. They work at the same company, bank at the same financial institution, attend the same college, or order merchandise from the same website. The emails are ostensibly sent from organizations or individuals the potential victims would normally get emails from, making them even more deceptive. Obtaining information like that that can be exploited is easier than you might think. Possibly the crooks have cracked a social media site where the company's employees hang out, or maybe they've just sifted through your public website to scrape names and email addresses from the code they find there. When they have the information they need, the crooks send the emails that appear to be legitimate. The messages may sound urgent and convincing, so a certain number of busy employees will simply respond to the message or click the link without even really thinking about the possible dangers. Once on a phony but realistic-looking website, they'll be asked to provide passwords, account numbers, user IDs, access codes, pins, and whatever else the crooks think they can exploit. The FBI cautions that spear phishing can also trick you into downloading malicious code or malware after you click a link embedded in the email. This is an especially useful tool in crimes like economic espionage, where sensitive internal communications can be accessed and trade secrets stolen. Malware can also hijack your computer and make it part of a malevolent network, a botnet, that's used to send spam or house stolen software or participate in distributed denial-of-service attacks. So what should Jeff do? Well, common sense is the best defense. Most companies, banks, and agencies do not request personal information via email. Actually, I'll go a bit further than that. No intelligent company will request that kind of information via email, banks or not. Instead of clicking the link, pick up your phone and call the sender. Use your corporate directory, though, instead of the phone number in the email. Those are usually just as phony as the email and the website. And never follow a link from an email that warns you about a security problem. Security experts will never include links. Instead, they will depend on you to know how to navigate to the bank or corporate website in question. Keep in mind that even legitimate-looking links 
are often frauds. Threats can arrive by phone, too. If you use Skype, you've probably seen urgent messages that look like they come from Skype. They don't, of course. And typing the URL that the recorded message provides will lead you to a site that dispenses malware. But a fisher might also pose as a support team member at your ISP and send an instant message asking for your password. You'll be told they simply need to verify your account or maybe that they want to confirm your billing information. Once you've provided the information the thief needs, he can access your account for fraudulent purposes or spamming. It's possible to avoid or at least mitigate phishing attempts by changing your browsing habits a bit. If you receive a message that says your account needs to be verified, just contact the company from which the email apparently originates. Check to see that the email is legitimate. Do this without using any of the contact information provided in the message. Nearly all legitimate email messages from companies to their customers contain an item of information that is not readily available to fishers. PayPal, for example, always will address you by name and not as dear customer, and the name PayPal uses will be the exact name that you provided when you signed up for the service. Emails from banks and credit card companies often include a partial account number, and thieves have figured out that many consumers don't understand the difference between the first four digits of the account, those identify the bank, and the final four digits, which identify an individual. If the message calls out your credit card that begins with 4640, it's a fraud. All Visa numbers begin with 4, and 4640 identifies Chase Bank. Hundreds of thousands of people who have Amazon Visa cards will have numbers that begin with 4640. So, before Jeff does anything, or before you do anything, it's important to confirm that the request is legitimate. And the only way to do that is to contact the sender using a method that has not been disclosed in the email. In a year of low-priced major operating system upgrades, Apple's Mountain Lion beat Microsoft's Windows 8, if the two companies were competing for release dates. Maybe they were, but who knows. The Windows update will cost as little as $40. Apple's Mountain Lion, which became available this week, costs just $20. That's a win for Apple, too. And that $20 price tag? That's for all the computers you own, that are associated with your iTunes account and that are running one of the two most recent versions of the operating system, Snow Leopard or Lion. Some of the earlier upgrades to Apple's operating system cost more than $100 per computer. In recent months, I've mentioned Windows 8 many times, but Mountain Lion and the previous Lion only in passing. In large part, that's because the TechBiter worldwide budget simply doesn't allow currently for the acquisition and maintenance of a second testing platform. But even though I no longer have an Apple computer that would run a current version of the operating system, it is important to note Mountain Lion's arrival. Not surprisingly, Apple's different worldview is taking the company and its operating system in a direction that differs from Microsoft's. Microsoft's worldview sees Windows on devices ranging from phones to servers. Apple's iOS operating system runs on handheld devices and OS X runs on desktop and notebook computers. That will remain the same. 
Both of these approaches are valid, and it'll be interesting to see which resonates more with buyers. In recent years, Apple has been making slow but steady inroads into the notebook and desktop market. But, just as Microsoft in Windows 8 combined tablet-centric techniques for desktop and notebook computers, so is Apple bringing its desktop and notebook operating system features that premiered on the iPad. Two years ago, Apple named the event at which it premiered Mountain Lion's predecessor Back to the Mac. The implication was that portable device features were being ported back to the larger operating system. Mountain Lion even has built-in speech recognition, but those who have used it compare the function more to Dragon Dictate circa 1999. Dedicated speech recognition programs such as the current versions of Dragon Naturally Speaking allow the user to speak more or less naturally, as I'm speaking now, while Mountain Lion wants the user to speak each word carefully and distinctly. And you have to be online for this to work, because the actual processing isn't done on your computer. Now this seems like an incredibly poor alternative solution to a problem that was actually solved a decade ago. Apple says Mountain Lion includes more than 200 new features, but there's one important feature that lives in Cupertino. Apple is encouraging, or perhaps requiring, developers to digitally sign their applications. This is a good way to mitigate the threat of malware being distributed via applications that are sold at the Mac App Store. Apple already exercises strong controls over applications sold in its store, and this simply improves safety and security. Microsoft and Google would do well to follow Apple's lead. In short circuits, remember the old Avis commercials about how number two had to try harder? Microsoft seems to have taken that lesson to heart. The Microsoft Apps Store available under Windows 8 will offer real trial periods for software. Microsoft Store will be number two behind Apple Store, or maybe number three behind Android's Store. On Microsoft's Store, you can download an application, try it out, and if you don't like it, you don't pay for it. This apparently is a concept that's well beyond either Apple or Google. Apps you purchase from Microsoft's store will include a seven-day trial period. So maybe you're wondering how that compares with trials offered by Apple's Apps Store or Google's Android Store. Apple's Store. No trial period. You want to try it? Eh, you buy it. Don't like it? Tough. Google's Android Store. Sure, you can try it. You've got a trial period. We'll give you 15 minutes. Neither of these policies really seems to fit very well with the company's public profile. As with most trials, features may be limited during the Microsoft trial period. If you choose to upgrade to the full application, any customizations, settings, or data you created during the trial period will persist. And if you have a trial application that's about to expire, Windows 8 will remind you.
If you want fast and reasonably priced internet service, Kansas City might be the place to live. Google will soon be providing gigabit internet service for $70 a month. That compares to my $100 per month service that runs at only a small fraction of that speed. Google is using Kansas City to show what's possible by going around local cable and phone companies. Instead, Google will use its own optical fiber in the Fiber for Communities broadband service. You want cable TV with that internet service? You'll have to kick in an extra 50 bucks a month. And Google will then include Nickelodeon, Discovery, Bravo, and Stars. Showtime is available, but it'll cost you more. AMC, HBO, CNN, Fox News, and ESPN currently missing. Google does plan to expand the lineup, though, but there's no publicly available schedule for that. But think about this. Gigabit. Gigabit. 1,000 megabits. My home service was recently expanded with great fanfare to 15 megabits. And a service that's twice as fast now as it used to be is welcome. But I'd sure like to have a service that's 50 times faster than even my faster service. Google is doing this to show how faster internet service can be used. Verizon has a similar, but much slower, program. The Verizon Fios fiber optic connections are available in several cities, including some parts of Manhattan, but the speed is about what I get at home, 15 megabits per second. Verizon has actually stopped expanding that service. Why? Well, it hasn't proved to be very popular with consumers. sure I'm glad to know all this climate change stuff is a hoax, bad science, nonsense invented by Al Gore to stifle free enterprise. Otherwise, I might be sitting in the dark on a Thursday night writing about climate change instead of putting the final touches on the weekly program summary. Well, this week, in fact, I was sitting in the dark on Thursday night, typing on an Android tablet. And boy, am I glad I decided to get the keyboard that went with the tablet. When this happens a year from now, I might be typing on a Microsoft tablet, if I can find a way to work that into the budget. That's what I was discussing with a co-worker earlier in the day, the fact that tablets aren't going to be used for writing novels, or by editors who are working on 500-page nonfiction books, or by programmers who are developing new applications, or even for creating websites. These uses all require too much keyboard and mouse interaction to be candidates for tablets. As useful as a tablet is, it's not a full computer. It can be used to read a document or to delete bits of text or add bits of text, to look up information on the web, to create a query that will be submitted to a MySQL database or Access, maybe to run applications designed for the tablet, and to perform hundreds of other functions that are useful. But a tablet is not a workstation. On last week's program, I discussed the next version of Microsoft Office, and earlier on this program, I noted the release of Apple's operating system, along with the approaching release of Microsoft's new operating system. So there's no point in rehashing all that here, but I will say that it's a good thing that Microsoft and Apple and Google, and others we don't even know about yet, are thinking about how we use computing devices and how we might use them in the future. It makes the future pretty exciting. Somebody may have the answer. It might not be Microsoft. It might not be Apple. And when the answer is found, it might not be the answer for very long, perhaps only a year or two. That's what's so interesting about technology. Better solutions are developed just about every day. Today's giants stand on the shoulders of yesterday's giants. And who knows what tomorrow will bring. Probably more storms and power outages. 
at least if you believe that most scientists are right. If you believe that it's all nonsense, well, just carry on. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.